Hi, my name is Jen Cervantes, and you're listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... Looking back on it, the only thing that surprises me is that it took me so long to realize that I needed to be writing for middle school. Uh, I knew from a very early age that I wanted to write. I had been writing since I was in middle school myself. Um, I hated being in middle school. It was a horrible time for me. But that's also when I had some of my most formative teachers uh, inspire me to read and to write and to get me into mythology. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Shiri Sondheimer. Welcome back to another episode of The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at The Roarbots and TheGBBPodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at TheGBBPodcast and Roarworthy. And I had to think about that. And I am Jamie Green, your host. You can find me at The Roarbots. And I'm Sherry Sondheimer. You can find me at SW Sondheimer on Twitter and at irate underscore Corvus on Instagram. Sherry, let's just get right into it. This is an interview that has been on near the top of my wish list of my um, let's get this one done for a long time. And I am so happy to say we finally got it done. I cleaned the whole room I was sitting in, even though the only part of me you can see on Skype is like me and the wall behind me. (laughs) (laughs) But the whole room had to be clean. (laughs) It's true. What if? What if he asked you to turn your camera around? This week, we had the distinct pleasure, actually, it was an honor to talk to Rick Riordan. Uh, Ostensibly, we talked to him about the new book he has coming out this week. Uh, It is The Tyrant's Tomb. It is the latest in the um, Trials of Apollo series. And I can tell you two kids, at least, that live in my house who are so excited. They come home every day from school. Is it out yet? Is it out yet? Is it out yet? When it, when, can I read it? Can I read it? And two kids in mine. <laughs> well, and probably adults in both of our albums, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Rick Riordan is, um, if you have kids aged, I mean... My son is in third grade, and he's read almost all of them. So probably third to, like, through high school uh, at this point. Probably older than that, because he's been writing for a while, and some of these kids who grew up with his earlier books are now a little bit older. Um, But if they even had an inkling of enjoyment for ancient mythology, uh, they probably found his books at some point. He started with the Percy Jackson series, which was a retelling or a recasting of many of the Greek myths. Uh, he's also written different series that are that touch on the Roman myths, the Egyptian, the Norse. He's crossed the streams and had characters appear and like do team up books. It's kind of like when when the Hardy Boys met Nancy Drew and had like the super mysteries. Um, those of you who are fans, like Annabeth from Percy Jackson is Magnus Chase's from the Norse books, his cousin. Yeah. And the books that he, there's the Heroes of Olympus series and the Trials of Apollo series, which is what he's doing now. Those kind of pull in characters from lots of the different series and they all kind of team up and and play a role in one another's stories, I guess we should say. And the thing about, about Rick's writing is it is middle grade to young YA, but... I will not lie, when the kids are in the middle of something else, I have read the, his books yeah. on my own. Yeah. They're no. they're just well-written books and great stories. And they're super fun. He is both a fun. good writer and a good storyteller. Yeah. They're super fun. They're they super, super fun. funny. They're accurate most of the time to the to the historic to the actual myths. Um, but they tell these really just compelling stories set in this mythological world that kids can relate to. Like, I totally get why he's a middle grade superstar. 
Mm-hmm. You know, all you got to do is read one book and you get it. And did, we didn't talk to him about this, but he's written mythology books in the voices of each of the heroes. Yes. My daughter adores those books. There's Greek. Izzy loves the Percy Jackson one. There's, uh, they're Greek heroes and Greek gods, I believe, are the names mm-hmm. of two of them. I don't know if you're referencing other ones, but those are books. There's, um, I think there's a Roman one, and then there's one called Nine from the Nine Worlds, which is the Norse one. Okay. I don't know how to explain it otherwise, and they're just fun to read. You know, like, if your only exposure to Greek mythology or Egyptian mythology was, like, some dry book that you were forced to read in seventh grade, you know, whatever class, um, and you hated it, or you were forced to read, you know, The Divine Comedy by Dante or, or whatever in, in high school and you hated it, you might want to give it a try. Like, don't let the middle grade or YA label dissuade you. These are such just fun, fantastic books. And there is a rabid, rabid fan base. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you enjoy them at all, you can go online and find thousands, if not millions, of like-minded fans who you can just have fun with because they, they go crazy. There's even a Camp Half-Blood. I was, an author I follow on Twitter who lives in New York said she saw a bunch of kids this summer get on the subway in their Camp Half-Blood t-shirts with, like, their cardboard weapons sticking out of their backpacks oh my and God, stuff. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me because colleges actually have Quidditch teams. Yeah. CMU has one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, actually, kids going to Camp Half-Blood is, is not really that much of a surprise. No. Um, not at all. But it's... Again, it, let's put it this way. If your only exposure to Percy Jackson was through the movie, just forget everything that you saw, read the book, um, because the movie is not the book. I mean, yes. it has the same characters, but it tells a completely different story, and fans of the books completely hated that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, if you're a fan of music, try the musical. I saw the musical. It's called The Lightning Thief. Loved it. My daughter, who is a super fan of the books, loved it. She can sing every single one of the songs. So find the soundtrack if you can't go see the show live. Um, It's a ton of fun, just like the books. Uh, There's lots of ways to enjoy this, but really, go read the books. (laughs) (laughs) But Tyrant's Tomb is the fourth book in the Trials of Apollo series. Mm -hmm. The penultimate book. There will be a fifth. Which I thought it was going to be the last one, so I was pretty excited that there's one more. (laughs) Yeah. Um... And so, and then that's, as far as he said, that's kind of going to wrap him up for the foreseeable future of telling stories in this world. Although he did say he can't imagine not writing. Yeah, he did say that, you know, potentially he would write some standalone novels, um, but it sounded to me at least like he was done for now with writing Mm -hmm. these multi-book series. Yeah. Um. But he has his hands full elsewhere. Um, yep. If you are a regular listener of this show, you will know that we have had a couple authors on before who have books, have written books in the Rick Riordan Presents imprint that mm-hmm. Disney has done. And we interviewed a couple in print on uh, on the Roarbots website as well. We did. Can, what, Shiri, why don't you just give a quick synopsis of what the Rick Riordan Presents imprint is? Um, so... Essentially, you know, Rick told us, and I had read this other places, that people would come up to him and say, well, when are you going to do Hindu mythology? When are you going to do Chinese mythology? And he said, you know, that made me a little uncomfortable because those aren't my stories. So his goal in starting this imprint was to have people have own voices write those stories. Um, So, you know, to have... Uh, an author of Indian descent write the Hindu mythology book um, to have authors of Korean descent write the Korean mythology, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've all been phenomenal so far. Yeah, I said every on, single one of them. I said on Twitter recently that the Rick Ryder Presents series is kind of like the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic yeah. Universe, where like each one has been phenomenal in its own way, but yet completely unique. And it's amazing that they've managed to keep the consistency so good. Yeah, I mean, we're on second novels from a lot of the authors, either in series or announced in world. There are zero misses in this imprint. 
so far. So far. And they're not slowing down. They It seems <laughs> like every week they're announcing at least one, if not two more titles in, that are coming soon. And one of my Book Riot colleagues noted that um, they're really, a lot of the authors that they're announcing are newer authors. Yeah. Um, so that's really cool, too. It's, you know, newer authors are getting the boost of, you know, Rick's endorsement, first of all, and then also being published by Disney Hyperion, which is mm-hmm. huge. Sure. Yeah. I could see this kicking off a lot of careers. A lot of careers. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we like we said, we've gotten a lot of books, a lot of different cultures, mythologies, stories have been told. But like I said in the interview, we still haven't gotten anything Chinese. <laughs> And my kids are waiting, <laughs> as I'm sure lots of other kids are. <laughs> I'm sure. But he was he was a little, eh, not elusive, but a little cagey when I asked him about that. My guess is that there's something definitely in the works. Well, and what he said was, you know, they don't, they would love that, but they don't have a checklist. Yeah. So what they're looking at when they look at manuscripts is quality stories. Mm-hmm. Um, For sure. But yeah, he was a little cagey. For so. sure. Um, but yeah, you're not here for us. You're here for Uncle Rick. So we're going to get into our interview with Rick Riordan right now. We do cover a lot. We don't just talk about the Tyrant's Tomb and his upcoming book. We do talk a lot about the imprint. We talk a lot about his um, his procedure, his process of writing, and his, his, like, what he's done in the past versus what he's doing now versus what he will do in the future. Because this is not the end for him. Right. Uh, just because he's wrapping up The Trials of Apollo... And putting a lot of energy into the imprint, it does not mean he's stopping writing by a long shot. And just to make this extra special, um, our kids gave us questions and uh, children of some of our friends and colleagues. So peppered throughout (laughs) our questions are some really good questions. Yeah, I was surprised. From the kids. Our kids are smart. They are. Kids we know are pretty smart. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Thank you guys for coming back week after week. Thank you for hitting subscribe. If you don't subscribe, hit subscribe. I would really appreciate it. Everyone would really appreciate it. Your life would be fuller if you had more of our podcast in your whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can find the show at thegbbpodcast.com, therorbots.com. You can find us online on Twitter mostly. I am Jamie Green, your host. You can find me at therorbots on Twitter. And I'm Sherry Sondheimer. You can find me at uh, SW Sondheimer on Twitter and at uh, (laughs) irate underscore Corvus on Instagram. Three out of four. (laughs) (laughs) You'll get it eventually. Thank you, guys. Uh, Here is our conversation with Rick Riordan. Enjoy. I I need to preface um, this entire conversation by saying that we are, both Shiri and I, the total envy of our children right now. (laughs) (laughs) Both of our kids are totally obsessed with everything that you've ever written or anything that carries your name. So when I told my children that I was talking to you, they they just about hit the floor. (laughs) That's awesome. I'm so glad to hear. Definitely tell them I said hi. (laughs) I I will. (laughs) We started reading my son um, the Percy Jackson books when he was three, and he would sit and listen. Wow. No pictures or anything. So. He's a long-time fan at nine. <laughs> My goodness, yeah. That's... Um, I mean, let's. I wanted to sort of start. We'll, we'll get into to, to the books and to the new book and we'll, and, and the you know, the presents imprint. We'll get into all that. But sure. do you remember what the first myth you read was? Uh, I think probably it was. Um, I mean, an American tall tale. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad, when I was really small, I don't remember. Hi, Kitty. <laughs> <laughs> my my dad was uh, reading to me from a book called um, Tales of the Western World. And it was a combination of Native American myths and American tall tales. So I think actually probably the first myth would have been John Henry hmm. uh, or maybe Johnny Appleseed. Um, and but I would definitely put those in into the, the realm of mythology. Yeah. Um, in terms of the Greek myths, gosh, I don't know. They've been with me so long. Uh, I'm not sure. I remember reading Robert Graves's anthology of, of Greek gods and heroes when I was probably in fifth grade, and that was wonderful. Uh, that's the first book of Greek mythology that I remember reading on my own. Mm. 
did you have to um and i i we we talked about mythology in a previous episode and i totally slandered the name but that the the classic mythology and it was edith hamilton right uh-huh. Yeah, I yeah. said I said Edith Wharton in the in the in the other one in the other interview, and I know that I knew that was wrong the second it came out of my mouth. And Shiri was like, well, I, "I don't remember that at all." <laughs> but did you when you were a student? I mean, I, I feel like saying were you subjected to that because that is not the way I feel kids should be exposed to the classic myths, the classic Greek myths, at least. Um, well, I mean, I don't I don't remember reading Edith Hamilton per se in school it wasn't it was never assigned to me um it was more sort of a a resource you know mm-hmm. it was there it was in the library the same with Dallaire's greek mythology uh, i don't remember ever being assigned it mm-hmm. uh, but i did enjoy reading it on my own but it is i i do think anthologies like that um don't appeal to every kid and it's better to sort of have them there if you want to take a quick dip or, or look in or, or check on a story, I, I don't necessarily think it's, it's, a, it's a volume I would assign my students to read, you know, cover to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, mythology has been done so many ways. And there's so many different retellings that the good news is we have lots to choose from. And if one version doesn't work for you, yeah. there's a dozen others. Plenty, that, that plenty of options. Yeah. yeah. Do you still teach? No, I don't. I actually stopped teaching. Uh, it's hard for me to believe, but I have been out of the classroom now uh, almost as long as I was in the classroom. I was I was a teacher for 15 years. And then when the Lightning Thief came out, uh, I decided to go full time as a writer, which was terrifying. <sighs> I had no idea how it would how it would go, you know, if I could make a go of this. Uh, so really, I was flying without a net for several years there. Um, before things started to really pick up and do well. Um, but yeah, no, I, I miss it. I, you know, every August I still have dreams that I need to do. <laughs> oh my God, my I didn't prepare. <laughs> exactly. Totally. One of my friends brought his daughter to a signing and he told me he had never seen anyone command a room of middle schoolers the way that you <laughs> are able before. You taught middle school, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a special sort of, um, I don't know affliction. <laughs> that sort of to have that sort of middle school mindset, you know, even when you're as old as I am. Uh, but yeah, I, I do relate to them very well. I get I get middle school. It's it's a rough age group in a lot of ways because there's so many big feelings and people are finding themselves and everything that happens is a is a big deal because it's never happened before. How yeah. did that influence what you decided to write? Uh, you know, it's the only looking back on it. The only thing that surprises me is that it took me so long to realize that I needed to be writing for middle school. Uh, I knew from a very early age that I wanted to write. I had been writing since I was in middle school myself. Um, I hated being in middle school. It was a horrible time for me, but that's also when I had some of my most formative teachers uh, inspire me to read and to write and to get me into mythology. So when I became a middle school teacher, it was really sort of, you know, I called it at the time sort of karmic. You know, I had to go back and redo that portion of my life over and over and over to try to help kids to get through what I considered for myself such a really tough time. Uh, and I feel a lot of empathy for the middle school experience. I get how hard it is. Um, so when I started writing, strangely enough, I started writing adult mystery novels and they did well, but my, my students were always asking me, you know, why aren't you writing for us? You know, you like to tell stories in the classroom, you, uh, you make the class fun and we enjoy it, you know, so why aren't you writing books for us? It wasn't until my own son needed the Percy Jackson story, uh, that I had to generate it for him. But I, I aimed it at middle school because that was the audience I knew the best. So it was really a process of a lot of different strands of my life coming together in a way that seems like, you know, it seems obvious in hindsight. But at the time, I didn't see it going that way. Did Was that a learning process for you, like trying to shift audiences as you were writing? Because writing for a middle school audience 
in many ways is very different than writing for an adult audience. I mean, you're not, I mean, we've, you're not dumbing down. You know, I hate that YA now gets that rap that it's just a dumbed down version of an adult book, which is not at all what it is. But right. as a writer, from that creative perspective, even though you had this idea, okay, I have the story and I know it's going to be for middle schoolers, actually putting the words on the page, how much of a struggle, if it was a struggle, was that for you? It wasn't actually much of a struggle. I felt like I had been struggling to write adult fiction, if anything. Mm. Um, but when I turned to middle school, I knew my audience so well after teaching for so long that I had a very clear picture of who I was writing for. Mm -hmm. And I could imagine myself, I tried to challenge myself to write in a way that I would read aloud in a classroom, even if it was a really tough time, like fifth period after lunch, you know, when everybody's either going to sleep or, you know, they're, they're bouncing off the walls and they have no attention span at all. You know, could I write a story that would still engage them if I were to read it to them and in, sort of in a dialogue and, and then get them involved. So that was, that was the challenge when I started writing Percy Jackson. And um, I'm not going to say it was easy, but it was something I felt that I had the tools to do. So, yeah, it was, yeah. It was a good change for me. My friend who's a middle school teacher, um, she buys, obviously, a lot of her own books for her classroom because that's the way it goes now. Sure, sure. And um, I actually bought Magnus Chase, the trilogy for her classroom. And she says your books are the ones that disappear the most and sometimes wander back and sometimes we have to buy new copies. <laughs> so, just an accomplice. Well, that's a, you know, it, that's a good problem to have. That's uh, so, Always nice to hear that the books disappear, especially if they go to people who need them. You know, or people, like, people I can't even really be mad. <laughs> yeah, I know. Books are like that. And it's... Do you do you still read the books? Like, do you still read the story out loud to see if it has that cadence and it has that ability to catch an audience? I do, and in, in the revision process, uh, my kids now, of course, are adults. They're I can't even believe this. They're 25 and 21. So they're not going to sit on the couch with me right. and let me read to them Aww. anymore. It's very sad. <laughs> I know. Uh, but I do I do read them aloud as best I can while I'm doing a chapter just to make sure that it flows. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do miss, though, having uh, kind of a built-in audience at home. Yeah. Uh, that was really nice <laughs> and, and it and helped a lot to develop the style. Do you find like neighborhood kids or kids of friends that you can use as a test audience? No, I think that'd be a little creepy. A little creepy. <laughs> I'm gonna, you know, no. Can I borrow your my... children for the afternoon? Yeah. Yeah. No, I just read it to my dog now. Oh. She's, she's a pretty good audience. The best audience, probably. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we've talked to a fit a fair few middle grade and YA authors at this point. And a lot of them, something that Jamie and I have noticed is that a lot of them tend to include um, like that bully trope, which for the most part, I've noticed that uh, you have avoided. Um, was that a conscious decision to deal with other issues like dyslexia and like teen homelessness instead? Uh, no, it wasn't a conscious decision. And I do... I mean, I do have bullying in the books. I, I hope that I, I try to give bullying from different perspectives, though. I mean, there's always a reason mm -hmm. why bullying happens. That's not, of course, to excuse it, but there's always a backstory there. Um, and that's something I had to deal with as a teacher a lot. I mean, you can't simply vilify the bully uh, because often they're bullying because they're getting bullied themselves by someone, you know, behind the scenes, you may, you just don't know what's going on or why that's happening. So I, I hope it's more nuanced than just saying bullies are bad. Hmm. Um, there was in fact a scene in the Percy Jackson uh, series. I mean, one of the first chapters is about a bully. It's about Nancy Boba Fett, who's like picking on Percy. And there was actually a scene in the fifth book of the Percy Jackson series that got cut where Percy comes across Nancy Boba Fett again after several years and after he's grown up and learned he's a hero and Nancy's like 
one of the victims of the attack on Manhattan and she's just like lying in the street asleep. And it gives Percy a chance to kind of look at her and see her for something other than this bully that looms so large in his mind. And Grover, the satyr, is with him and he looks at her and says, you know, what should we do? You want to like leave her here? Should we draw like a mustache on her or something? You know, cause she's passed out. And Percy says, no, you know, let's just move her to the side and make sure she's okay. And they, they move along. Unfortunately, that didn't make the final cut of the book. Uh, it was the, my editor at the time was just a little worried it would slow the pace down. Yeah. But I always thought it was a really nice moment of revisiting, yeah. you know, from, from a different perspective when you look back at somebody who maybe didn't treat you well. Yeah. Uh, and, and recognize that, you know, they're, they're people too. I mean, they, they have reasons for what they did. Yeah. And it's a subtle but still very powerful way to show growth of the character. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's always incredible. It's not incredible. It's interesting to me what gets left behind and why, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and if there was any regrets attached to those those scenes and <laughs> characters and things that didn't quite make it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Well, as 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 someone once said, I don't remember who, but they said a book is never done; it's only yeah. due. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to stop at some point when the <laughs> clock ticks. You know, it's like, all right, I'm done. I'm just <laughs> it's yeah. like. I can't 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 keep tinkering. Exactly. Um, shifting gears just a little bit. A few months ago, my daughter and I saw and really thoroughly enjoyed the Percy Jackson musical. Oh, great! Um, and she can she's a big fan of musicals right now, and she's ten. She can sing the entire show. She, she could do a one girl <laughs> show of the entire thing. Um, are you happy with how it turned out? Well, I have to I have to qualify this. Um, I have not seen it. Oh, okay. I, it, and that is that is has nothing to do with the quality of the show. That is simply my own uh, idiosyncrasy as an author. I have a lot of trouble watching uh, or, or listening to an adaptation of my stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I cannot listen to the audiobooks. It just makes me want to crawl out of my skin. Mm-hmm. Not that they're not good, not that they're not done well, but I have my own voice so embedded in the narrative, that to hear someone else read it is very uncomfortable for me. Um, and as I've said many times, I could never watch the movies. It just, yeah. I, I, just, I just get this sort of visceral feeling of repulsion just even thinking about it. Um, I just can't do it. And the, the theater uh, piece, I have not seen it for the same sort of reason that it's just very difficult for me mm-hmm. to kind of sit and watch an adaptation i i tried to watch a few clips that they sent me but i didn't even make it 10 seconds and i was i was fidgeting and i didn't i just i couldn't do it however am i happy with the way it came out based on what the fans of the books are telling me yes they have endorsed it for me (laughs) they have gone i mean almost unanimously everyone who's seen it has said they loved it. It was uplifting. It was, you know, true to the spirit of the books. Uh, it had the humor. It had the heart. And if the fans of the books are happy with it, I'm happy. Sure. Um, so, so that's why, um, yeah, I do support it, and I think it's a fabulous thing. So, is is your, I guess, aversion to adaptations of any kind? Is it is it because you are so connected to the words that you wrote, and you just you can't see? I'm trying to figure out the angle of, of what it is that, that makes you opposed to them. Is, is, it, is it that you see the flaws in what you wrote as an, as an artist, or is it that you just you can't even imagine this story existing in a different medium from what you put it down in? I, I wish I had a, a good answer for you. I haven't, it's something I've thought about a lot over the years, and I'm not sure I have the answer either. I, I don't, in theory, I'm not opposed to different versions of stories. I mean, I, you know, I get that that's... That's a lot of fun to see something reimagined in different media. Uh, I do get that. But, I mean, the, the, best, the best I can compare it to is when you hear your voice on a recording. Awful. And, uh, yeah, right, <laughs> right? Isn't that your natural feeling? Yeah, it's feeling? terrible. I hate it. That's, that's the way it feels to me. Okay. It's, it's like hearing something that sounds in your head one way, 
played back to you yeah. in a way you didn't expect and, and it's very uncomfortable and all you can think inside is no 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 that's all totally wrong is that really what it's <laughs> no like this exactly. i gotta start over <laughs> exactly so that's i guess that's the best i can i can okay. uh, that, describe it, makes it for you it makes it, sense it's, well it's like when um when scalzi told us that his his internal monologue sounds like Will Wheaton, and that's yeah. why Will Wheaton reads all of his audio. Books. That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, he did a great job on Red Shirts. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, right? I, I've listened to the audio of that one as well. Yeah. <laughs> so we have um, peppered here throughout our questions are we, we have, as I said, kids in our lives who are huge fans. So we have, you know, we had to throw in a few questions from, from our sure. own kids. Um, Shiri, I'll let you take the first one. So my son, Izzy, would like to know where you learn about all of the magical weapons and why does only Magnus Chase get a talking sword? <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. Um, well, where do I learn about the weapons? Most of them come from the original myths. Uh, they're inspired by actual weapons used by various heroes. Um, sometimes I simply make things up. Uh, like uh, there's, as far as I know, no such thing as celestial bronze as opposed to regular bronze. I just thought that was cool. <laughs> um, it, it made you know logical sense within the fantasy world to do that. There are a lot of talking swords uh, in mythologies of different kinds. Uh, I don't know why I didn't use one previously, but uh, the Sword of Summer is such an important weapon, and it has such a history uh, that I figured it, it deserved to have its own voice. Um, so, yeah, yeah, Jack is, is one of my favorite characters. <laughs> nice. Do you, do you have any go-to sources when you're doing your research? I mean, I know there's always the original myths, but when you build on them and expand on them, is there is there something that you kind of always have beside you as you're writing? I have a pretty big library of resource books that I go to. Um, there are also some fantastic websites that are, are great go-to sites. There's a really good one on Greek mythology called theoi.com. It's T-H-E-O-I.com. And it's fabulous uh, because it gives you links to the primary sources. So if I don't remember all the different places that Medusa is mentioned, mm -hmm. I can go to the site and it will show me, you know, oh, wow. all the different um, primary documents where she appears over the years. And then I can go to the library and bring them down and, and hunt through uh, the various books. So, yeah, that's, that's one that I've used a lot for the Greeks. Cool. Um, all right, I have a question from my daughter, and it leads us into Tyrant's Tomb, um, so okay. we can start talking about that a little bit. But she looked at the cover, and she's been anxiously awaiting this book, but she looked at the cover, and she says it looks like Reyna is going to be in this book. Is that Reyna we see on the cover? That is absolutely Reyna, nice. yes. Okay. Yes. Very much <laughs> She will be so. happy. She's... Good job, she's... Zoe. <laughs> yeah, Reyna is front and center. Yeah, yeah the, the Tyrant's Tomb takes place in the bay area it is all set around camp jupiter the roman demigod camp so all of the old roman demigods that uh, were in the heroes of olympus series will be in the book again you'll see hazel and frank and reyna uh you'll also see tyson the cyclops and ella the harpy uh and a bunch of other characters uh, that that are either recurring or some some new as well yeah Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, so my son uh, wanted to know how many books are going to be in the Apollo series. Is this the last one? No, this is going to be a five-book series uh, like you know the other sort of Percy-based ones. Percy was five. The Heroes of Olympus was five. I figured, okay, you know, this is I, I see this kind of as the capstone to Percy's world. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'll write other standalone novels about that in the future. I'm not sure. But there will be one more after the trials uh, after uh, the tyrant's tomb that'll sort of wrap up the trials of apollo one more to come did you um at what point did you realize that this was going to be this huge universe that crossed over onto itself i mean when you first wrote the lightning thief you probably 
I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, you probably assumed it was a self-contained story that you were going to tell these characters this story and it had a beginning and an end. At what point did yeah. you realize, oh no, like this could be so much more and it could be lots of different stories that cross and crisscross in different right. ways? Well, to some extent, I had the idea that it would be a series of some kind from the very beginning, simply because I, I personally enjoy reading series. Mm-hmm. And that was always my go-to. If I get invested in a world uh, and I love a book, I want to go back to that world. I, I would like to feel like I can revisit it in, 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 different, uh, in different ways with different characters. Um, that goes all the way back to me reading The Lord of the Rings or mm-hmm. reading the Earth the Earthsea trilogy. You know, I, I needed the next installment. So I had a pretty good idea that Percy was going to be five books. Uh, I figured in five books I could do all of Greek mythology. I, I was wrong. <laughs> I was ambitious. so much. I mean, it, it really is like the Hydra. You, you know, you cut off one head and yeah. two more pop up. Uh, the, the deeper you go, and it just it's so expansive, this world. So, um, yeah, I mean, right now I kind of feel, again, like, well, geez, after 15 books, you know, in Percy's world with Apollo and with the heroes of Olympus and all of this, I mean, I think I will have covered <laughs> – pretty much everything uh but you know i'm i'm always surprised so yeah. i don't know there's a venn diagram floating around on the internet i could definitely use it i get a little lost myself sometimes who is this again who wrote this i did do you have do you have like a master flow chart or, or a chart so to keep it all straight no, I. <laughs> so it's all just in your head. <laughs> no, I mean I take I take a lot of notes. Yeah. Uh, I do have outlines, and at the end of every book, I'll make uh, a document in preparation for the next one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll have all the main points, so I don't forget anything that's really critical. And then as I go deeper and deeper into a series, I'll go back and reread the first books just to make sure I know where things are going. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean as the series as the multiple series get bigger and bigger, it does become a lot. It does yeah. become a lot to juggle. Are you an outliner? Like, do you need to have a fully fleshed out outline before you start writing? I do outline. I would not say that it has to be fully fleshed out. Uh, sometimes an outline for a book for me will be just a couple of pages and it'll be chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. And I'll have just sort of a rough idea of what's going to happen in each chapter. And it often changes, but it's it's really just more of a a kind of a, a very quick roadmap, so I know where I'm going. Once I start writing, I, I write the entire first draft without stopping. I don't let myself edit, and I get to the end knowing that it's terrible, <laughs> knowing that it's just completely rough and makes absolutely no sense. Uh, and that'll take about three months to get that horrible first draft done, which I would never show to anyone. And then I go back and spend the rest of the year reading it and polishing it and revising it. Uh, so that's that's my process. And you know, and I, you guys talk to a lot of writers. You know, everybody's different. Yeah. Uh, and the only thing you know that's common is that you have to find what works for you. What what's your productive method? Yeah. And this seems to work for you. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, clearly, so far so good. <laughs> but you know, I'll tell you after after thirty books, I'm still like. Every book, I'll sit down and I'll say, "Oh, this is it! I've forgotten how to write." Yeah, you know, I just I can't do it. You know, I've been fooling people for thirty books, and this is the one where you know I'm not going to be able to finish it. And that never so that, seems that to go away either. Every, never goes away. It's funny, like you said, like you could talk to twenty different writers, and there's twenty different approaches to writing and how they do it, how they get the words on the page. But one thing that's consistent among everybody is that everybody feels like a fraud when they sit down to write a new book. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> It kind of makes the rest of us feel better, you know, like, so when, I, when we sit down to do something, no matter what it is, if you feel like a fraud, be like, well, okay. I mean, if even Rick Riordan and Stephen King and people like that, if even they still feel like, what am I doing? I don't know how to write a sentence. Yeah, <laughs> then <exactly>. it's okay. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so our friend Anne-Marie's son, Noah, would like yeah. to know, he's 10, okay. why Apollo was the best god to cast down from Olympus. And I'm, as a corollary to that, wondering if it's been kind of fun to mess with, like, the literal golden child of the Pantheon. <laughs> or less. Oh, absolutely. 
poor Apollo. Poor Lester. Yeah, well, I mean, it's been incredible fun to mess with him. Um, and he's so full of himself at the beginning of the series. Um, you know, he, because he is, he's literally the golden child. Um, and why him? Well, because there was precedent for it in the myths. He really was cast down from Olympus and turned human twice before in the myths by Zeus, who was punishing him for various things. And that's where the idea came from. I, I thought, well, you know, wow, I didn't know Zeus could do that. First of all, he could turn an immortal into a mortal. And so if he's done it twice, why not go for three strikes? So this was Apollo getting punished again, as he has twice before. Uh, and I know a lot of readers were like, they read the first book, and they said, oh, I hate the character. The main character is a total jerk. And I'm, and I'm thinking, well, yes, that's kind of the point. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's a complete jerk. But, you know, stick with him, because he's going to get his medicine. He's going to go through this punishment. And he really, strangely enough, has, I think, the most interesting character development arc of any hero I've ever worked with because he goes from so high to rock bottom and then has to sort of rebuild himself coming back up. Mm. When you, when you talk to kids and you know, you command that room of middle schoolers or if you just talk one-on-one and, and you talk about trials of Apollo, have you noticed the common takeaway that they're taking from the books? And it is, is it what you expected when you wrote the books that this is what kids are going to, glean from the books? No, I've learned a lot uh, writing The Trials of Apollo. Um, one thing I didn't expect is how how different it would appear to the young readers, that because this is from Apollo's point of view, it was a different series than Percy Jackson. Mm. Somehow making Apollo the narrator really has kind of been a psychological dividing line uh, for a lot of readers, uh, because he is so different. He's a different narrator. And that's why I did it that way. I wanted to challenge myself. I always kind of want to shake myself up a little bit by writing, even if it's the same world, kind of taking a different angle into the world. Um, so I wasn't expecting that. And uh, it's been interesting to hear their reactions. Um, the readers who have gone on to book two and book three, however, I think have been kind of surprised by how much they bonded with Apollo hmm. uh, because the thing that they can relate to most of the readers is feeling like you're just, you could be good at something, but you're not, you know, you want to be this competent, popular, attractive person, but you're not, <laughs> you feel bad mm -hmm. in your own skin. You're tripping over your own feet. You know, if you could just do the right thing and everyone would see what a nice person you are, but somehow, you're always sabotaging yourself. And that's the, the situation Apollo is in all the time as the 16-year-old mortal. And I think that is one thing that young young readers have been able to relate to quite a bit. Absolutely. <laughs> and me, too. And but. me. I was just going to say, I kind of relate to that, too. I'm just saying. <laughs> so one thing that I, even as an adult, have been able to relate to is there's such great um, LGBT representation in your books and i know that especially um alex from magnus chase being gender fluid mm -hmm. was super important to so many kids and a lot of adults too mm -hmm. um so i'm hoping that you hear a lot of positive feedback about that has there been any backlash from other people oh sure i mean there's you know any any time that um that I kind of um, expand the world in any way in terms of representation. Sure, there's always going to be backlash. I mean, people are, well, I mean, pe people are afraid of the other, you know, whatever they make that other to be. Anything that's outside of their uh, normal realm of experience is, is threatening, uh, or it can be. But that's exactly why we need to have these conversations. And I think children's literature is the perfect place to have that conversation. Um, there, I, I, sometimes I hear, well, you know, you shouldn't be exposing children to all these different types of people. And I think, but your children are living in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they are exposed to lots of different kinds of people. You, 
you cannot insulate them, nor nor should you, from that. Um, I you know I think back to my own son when he was in Montessori. He was five, and he had a um, one of his classmates was on his soccer team, and this particular uh, young girl had had two moms, and my son and this was in Texas. This is not you know, I mean it's like deep red state, and my son said, why does she have two moms and, you know, I have a mom and a dad. And I said, well, you know, sometimes, you know, a man and a woman fall in love and they have a family. Um, and sometimes a woman and a woman fall in love. They have a family. Sometimes a man and a man, they have a family. So you could have all kinds of different parents. And he said, oh, okay. Yeah. They just get it. it wasn't, the kids just get yeah. it. Yeah. They don't care. I no. mean, it, it, because it wasn't a big deal to me, it wasn't a big deal to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and to get back to your question about Alex, Alex was directly inspired by a student I taught at a middle school in San Francisco in the 90s. And this particular student, uh, at the time, I didn't really have the language or the sort of the capacity to understand the student's journey. Um, he identified well, I mean, he used the pronouns he and him, but pretty it was pretty clear he identified as female. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is not, we didn't really have the language to address it at the time. Uh, but, I mean, from the time he was five, this is a K-8 school, from the time he was five, it was very clear he self-identified as female. Mm-hmm. Um, and we tried to create a pretty supportive environment for him, his choices of friends, his activities, his his um, his dress, whatever it was, we we supported him. But looking back, I I wish that I could have given him more support. Mm-hmm. I wish that I could have done more. And so Alex was kind of a way of telling that student and quite a few other students I've had over the years. You know, I I do see you. You know, you you matter, and I, I get that. As challenging as middle school is. For you, it's even more challenging in a lot of ways because you're looking, you're you're doing what everybody else is doing and having a journey of self-discovery, but you're also dealing with all this other pressure and lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was where Alex came from. That was a very long answer, but <laughs> no, that was that was awesome. And that's why my that's why the Magnus Chase books disappear from my friends' class. Mm-hmm. For, to a large extent, is finding the acceptance from that character. Yeah. yeah. And unfortunately we just don't see, don't see much of that. Uh, It it never feels good to think that you're not seen to, Mm -hmm. to feel invisible. Uh, Nobody likes that. Yeah. Um, I mean, carrying on that thread of, of representation and being seen um, in a, in a slightly different direction, but that's exactly what the Rick Riordan presents books are doing um, just from a, from a more cultural perspective, Uh, your own books. I mean, you talk, you've written about Greece and Rome and Egypt and the Norris mythologies. When did you realize that? um, I mean, you've always known that the, the world is full of mythologies. Every culture has their own, but at what point did you say, you know what? I'm going to use this platform that I now have to tell all of these stories. Mm-hmm. Well, I, it really was a conversation that I've been having for years with my readers. Anytime I will do an event, um, very early on, readers, the, the, the kids got the idea of mythology-based fantasy, and they were excited by that in the same way that I am. And they would quickly see the possibilities. Wow, if you can do Percy Jackson with Greek myths, mm-hmm. why why can't you do something similar with Chinese mythology or Japanese mythology or the Native American mythologies, African mythologies? There are so many fantastic stories. Uh, and so they would ask me, when are you going to do a book uh, that represents the mythology I grew up with? Mm-hmm. Let's say in Hindu mythology. I get that one a lot. And I always felt a little uncomfortable with that question because although I love Hindu mythology and it's a fascinating, fascinating um, world religion, I am not of that, that heritage. I didn't grow up with it the way that I did with Greek mythology or Norse or even Egyptian. Um, so I, I did think at some point, I guess about 
six years ago, Disney said, would you ever consider doing an imprint for us? And at the time, I didn't really know what that would involve or, you know, why would I do my own imprint? But then I put those two things together and I thought, well, if I did an imprint, I think the thing I would like to do is find authors who are actually from those cultures who are already writing books and doing great things. And rather than me trying to write about Hindu mythology, let's find an author who is from that community, who uh, has that voice and has that upbringing and let them tell their own version of the story. Um, so that's what Rick Riordan Presents is about. It's about finding those other authors, letting them do their own thing. And I am just kind of the megaphone. I'm helping them hopefully get their stories out there. Um, you, you, you brought it up. You mentioned Chinese mythology. So on behalf of my <laughs> wife, who is Chinese, and my children, who are mixed, um, are, are we going to see a book or a series based on Chinese mythology? Sure hope so. I love it. Um, we, uh, you know, we have a, let me just say, we have a lot of irons in the fire. Uh -huh. And as the, as the imprint is getting more known, um, we are getting a lot more interest, a lot more submissions. Uh, and so, I mean, we don't have a checklist, you know, right. we're not like saying we need one of these and one of these. It's, it's just, if the right project comes in and it feels great and it looks good, um, and it fits sort of what we're trying to do, then we'll go for it. I would love to see some books about Chinese mythology. It yeah. would be fascinating to see. As would I. <laughs> my, my daughter, who is seven, would like to know, um, we're reading the second Arusha book right now. Your books tend to be yeah. our family, our family read aloud. So either my husband or I read them to the kids, even though they're a little older now. Um, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and she would like to know why you chose Aru Shah specifically. Aru really sticks with yeah. her and resonates with her. Yeah, yeah um, the voice, uh, Rosh, uh, Rosh Chakshi has such a great voice, such a great sense of humor, um, that when I read the first chapter that she submitted to us, uh, it was sort of an instant yes for me. I, I read it and I said, okay, yeah, you know, she's got the sensibility. She has the voice. She's, she's, she really knows how to capture the middle school uh, imagination. So she, she gets it in, in a way that I can appreciate and resonate with. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, it was, it was for us just good fortune that that was one of the first submissions we got. As soon as we announced the imprint, uh, Rosh got really excited about it and worked something up very quickly and sent it off. So uh, it was a beautiful, uh, a, a beautiful happenstance that uh, that the right book found the right imprint at the right time. There have been, um, it seems like a, a whole flurry of announcements recently of, of new books and sequels and announcements. Um, and I know, like you just said, you've got a lot of you know irons in the fire and a lot of things that have not been announced yet, but. Um, once you figured out that, okay, we're onto something here and we're getting some really good submissions and we're telling some really great stories and we've got some really great authors who want to be on board, was there mm -hmm. something that you said, this is something, even though we don't have a checklist, this is something I really, really want to see? Um, gosh, I mean, everything. I, I would love it if we could have, uh, you know, a real wonderful sampler of, of world mythology. Uh, so that kids could get into any culture they wanted to and use that as a window uh, to find out about it, to have a fun way of exploring the stories from that, that culture. Um, and there's so many. I mean, you know, just throw a dart at the map mm -hmm. and you're going to hit someplace that's got wonderful, wonderful indigenous stories. So, yeah, I'd like to see it all. Now, can, can we do everything in the world? I don't know. Maybe not. I may, you know, I don't know how, how many years I have left, but <laughs> as many as I do, I'm going to try to get as many great stories out there for, for the kids as we can. Because, uh, you know, it really it is becoming, it is becoming, uh, this is a cliche, but it's becoming a very small world. It's becoming yeah. a global community. Um, and we have to address that. We can't, we can't keep treating people as the other. You know, we have to keep thinking of, of all these stories as, well, kind of reflections of the same human experience in a lot of ways. And the ways that different cultures come at that are, are beautiful. And being able to compare and contrast the mythologies is a wonderful way of building empathy. Yeah. 
Um, and as much as we love the imprints and the imprints titles and all the books that have come out, they've all been fantastic. Um, I, I certainly hope the Tyrant's Tomb and the fifth book in that series is not going to be the end of books written by you. So what's <laughs> going to be coming next from you as an author rather than the series editor? Sure. Uh, I can't imagine not writing at this point. I've been doing it so long that I am sure that I'll be writing something. I'm just not sure what yet. Yeah. Uh, it, it, is, it is going to feel very good to wrap up the Apollo series. Uh, that is the last book right now that I have under contract. And I don't even remember the last time. It's been at least 20 years since I have not had a deadline hmm. looming over me. So having that last Apollo book written next year is going to be a very satisfying experience. I'm sure that I'll write more. Disney, my publisher, has been fantastic. I'm sure you know, they, they will basically be happy to talk to me about whatever project. That's a really nice problem to have for sure, me. Sure. I'm, I'm very lucky. Um, but I don't know what it'll be. I have a lot of ideas and I, I think it will be just whatever comes uh, to the forefront, whatever I feel most excited about and most compelling and that kids will want to read the most. So it would, you're going to stay in the, the, the YA, young, younger reader realm? I don't see myself going elsewhere, mm. no. I, I mean, I've, I've sort of done adult books. Um, I, I started with seven private eye novels and... I enjoyed that a lot, and I learned a lot about writing from the process of doing that. But I do think that I'm writing to the audience I know best, uh, and I'm playing to my strong suit here uh, by writing to the middle grades. And YA, I love YA. I don't know that I would be a great YA writer, though. I I don't know. I've never tried. But um, if I had to guess, I'd say probably the next one will be the same kind of audience that I've been working with. Awesome. Well, that makes me happy. <laughs> It'll make my kids happy, too. <laughs> so I've seen um, a lot of social... I follow a lot of... I write, I write for Book Riot, so I follow a lot of uh -huh. writers on social sure. media. Yeah. And um, I've seen a lot of posts where people are... Very successful authors are absolutely starstruck to be have a chance to talk to you. <laughs> Do you ever get starstruck by other writers still? Oh, of course. Yeah. Other writers. Absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I don't get to interact with other writers as much as I would like to. Uh, it is can be a very solitary kind of profession. Uh, and even when we're out on the road, you know, promoting books, we're usually usually doing it on our own. You know, there, there are some team efforts out there that are fantastic, but I do tend to be a very solitary writer. So when I do interact with other writers, especially if they're writers whose work I admire, yeah, absolutely, I get I get tongue-tied. You know, I remember I was, this was years ago, but I was, um, um, I, I saw Louis Sakar who wrote Holes yeah. at the Texas Book Festival, and I was too nervous to say hi to him uh, because I enjoyed that book so much. So, you know, later I wrote him and said, I, I saw you at the festival, I didn't <laughs> say anything. You know, I was just too nervous to say hi. Um, Suzanne Collins, you know, who I've, I've, I don't know well, but who I've gotten to talk to and meet several times. Um, I, I've been a fan of her books since Gregor the Overlander. And the first time I met her was before the Hunger Games had come out. And I, I was just stumbling all over myself, you know, <laughs> telling her what a wonderful writer she was and, and how much I thought of her. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm a definite fanboy. <laughs> and I ask this as a fangirl who cleaned the entire room, even though you can't see it. <laughs> yeah, Respect. We, we've done, um, oh God, we're closing in on 250 episodes here. And I, before we got on the line with you, Shiri was like, I, I'm actually a little bit nervous about this one. <laughs> so I don't think those butterflies ever really go away. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. <laughs> I'm just a middle school teacher, you know, there's nothing, <laughs> nothing to be nervous about. Do you have a favorite mythology joke? Oh, dear. I Not hate to put to you let on the you spot. Down. Yeah, I hate to let you down. It's I, a very specific sure. question, so if the answer is. is no, I understand. <laughs> yeah, I don't, 
you know, I'm going to be thinking about that all day now. <laughs> Do I have a good mythology joke? Jeez. We Seems pr- like there should be. I was going to say, we probably should have had one in reserve for, you know, the inevitable. Well, what's your favorite question that you would ask us? Because I don't think I have one either. (laughs) Somebody somebody was very clever on uh, social media yesterday. I forget where it was, but I posted a picture that um, Viria, the artist who does some portrait art for me online, had done a Frank. And he's sort of halfway shape-shifting from human into a bear. So he has this one arm that's like got claws on it. And one of the commenters said, yeah, Frank deserves the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. Nice. (laughs) That's a groaner. (laughs) That's worthy of dad joke me. Yeah, Yeah. right? (laughs) Um, I think this is our last question. I think it is. If you could have any, usually I ask people what color their lightsaber would be, but since this is special. (laughs) Good one. If you could have any mythical beast for transportation, what would it be? Oh, wow. I'd have to go with the dragon. I mean, come on. Right? You know, I I know that's, you know, that's old school and that's real (laughs) mainstream. But if it's on the table as an option, you'd be dumb to ignore (laughs) it. (laughs) Come on. Yeah, I would love to have the dragon as a pet. I don't know how I would feed it, but yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that I yeah, I'm like why would you not choose the dragon over something yeah. lesser yeah. than a dragon because everything is lesser than yeah. a dragon. And I think for, for for lightsaber I would have like a strobe light. That would be so oh. cool. Yeah. <laughs> like Spencer's gift back in the 80s. Like, oh, that is a t- that's that's we've not heard that answer before. So. We have not. Bravo. <laughs> This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. Take care.